Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You're about to hear an interview with a guy named Rick Martinez. And Rick was a successful, is a successful entrepreneur. Grew a company up to 600 employees and had a successful exit. What I found fascinating about interviewing Rick was the zen-like quality of Rick as he thought about the sale of his company. I mean, so many of us as entrepreneurs are spending a lot of time, and I, should, I put myself in the same bucket, thinking about multiples and earnouts and, and all the kind of hard facts and the hard negotiation points of selling a company. And what you're going to hear is Rick took a very different approach to thinking about the sale of his company. And in fact, that attitude sort of resonates throughout his life in lots of different areas. So I think it's a fascinating story, a very different story than I've heard so far in doing this show. And I hope you like this interview with Rick Martinez. So Rick, tell me about MedTrust, the company you sold. So MedTrust, um, simply put, so I'm a registered nurse by background. What we did is we supplied the United States government, military bases specifically, with registered nurses and physicians on a long-term contract basis. So a, a military institution, so, so give me an example of a customer of yours, who they would have been. Perfect. So we were, we, an example of our customer would be for, let's see, Walter Reed Army Medical Center, Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C., or uh, what's called SAMC, which is the Fort Sam's Houston Hospital here in San Antonio. Uh, they would have a shortage. Uh, we're basically a staffing company, so they would have a shortage of registered nurses and/or physicians, and they would set out a contract. We would bid on it and uh, supply them with with long-term staff. Got it. And so these these uh, registered nurses were they employees of yours who you then subcontracted out to these uh, to these institutions, or were they people you knew about that you could place? Or how did that? How was the relationship with the actual nurses your, with your firm? Yep. So the relationship was they were our employees full time. They were our full time employees with benefits, uh, just like just like most companies out there. So we supplied them to the government. So they became subcont. We we as a company were a subcontractor to the federal government, and we placed our staff in the hospitals. What a spaghetti ball of complexity it must have been for you to sell to the government. I mean, how did you figure all that stuff out? You know that was. That's uh, probably an entire conversation over a few beers in and of itself. But it started with just one contract with one person in our very first year. And I honestly, John, I just kind of stumbled into it. We were growing a company and uh, was looking for another avenue, another way to another revenue stream, if you will. And here in San Antonio, we have a large government contingency with several bases. And um, somebody said one day, why aren't you selling to the government? And um, I, I never knew that we could sell staffing to the government. And that's how I became aware of it. A single, a single contract came available, one person, one FTE. Uh, I actually filled that space for the government. And that was the beginning. That was the start of this of what became just one heck of a ride. Because you were a nurse yourself, a trained nurse, and you worked in the military, I think. Is that right? I am indeed. I, so I still, I'm still a registered nurse. I have not practiced in several years. And uh, part of the story is in 2006 and seven, I was reactivated by the U.S. Army. So I, I not only am a nurse, but I actually became um, an active duty nurse uh, in the middle of our, of our company growing. Wow. And so give me a sense of, of, of how big you got the company. I mean, you ran it for 12 years. I mean, 
either if you want to share revenue or number of nurses you placed, or just give us some sense of, of, of what the company's size was when you went to uh, sell it. Sure. So just like any company, it starts with just an idea and uh, started with one employee, which was myself, grew to two employees. The second one was, again, nothing fancy. It was my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And three to four employees. and Fishing a, from the company doc, Rick. This is yeah, a problem. No doubt. <laughs> I, I, that's, it's a good thing I didn't know that rule existed or my life may be radically different, John. But um, <laughs> that's, that's pretty funny. I never even thought of that. But, um, you know, just through a lot of hustle, hard work, learning, growing, we grew from one employee to 10. And in the heyday, we had about 600 employees staffing military bases all over the United States. Wow. 600 people that are relying on you for a paycheck. That's a pretty, a pretty big deal. So give us, the, give us the triggering event. I mean, what led you running this business? You had it up, scaled up significantly. What, what caused you to think about selling it? You know, here's what it was. Uh, like I shared a minute ago, I was activated in 2006 by the government, by the United States Army. And um, obviously, it was five years after 9-11. And I figured it was my time to serve. And that was the beginning. It was I didn't know it then, but that was the seed that was planted. Um, being ironically, it was being pulled out of my company that planted the seed to make me think harder and longer about actually exiting the company. And here's the reason why, because I'm a trained trauma nurse. I've been doing that all my career. And I thought I was going to be going overseas to Iraq or Afghanistan. And instead, John, I went to Walter Reed in Washington, DC. And I was a little disappointed to tell you the truth uh, that I wasn't going to really get to shine, really get to practice my craft. But um, I went there and it became evident immediately when I, when I met my very first patient that uh, something was unveiling that the seed was being watered and groomed, if you will, because my patients were amputees. My patients were, uh, I worked on a floor where um, the, the newest, I'm looking for the correct word, the freshest, most injured amputees and traumatically brain injured um, soldiers, Marines, airmen, um, Navy members, I worked on that floor and I realized that I might have another calling. I realized that suddenly the, my, my life's picture uh, just it exponentially grew on, during the 18 months I served at Walter Reed. And so that was the beginning of, of my moment of really considering other avenues in life. I guess what a, I mean, a huge impact for you to go and have that experience, obviously enormously emotional. But at the same time, you could have reacted to that and thought, well, it's my job to continue to ro run this business as well as I can because uh, you know, I could bring all my entrepreneurial skills and, and staff these hospitals with great nurses. I mean, at the end of the day, you could have followed that mission to, to want to give back and serve by continuing to scale your business. But there was something that, that caused you to think, well, maybe I'll, I'll sell it. Was there anything else that, that layered on that, uh, that you could share with us? I mean, if you think about why you... You chose the avenue of selling. Yep, and you know I won't mince any words. I'll, I'll just I'll tell you the um, uh, the straight up facts. It's so my eyes were open to new possibilities. I realized that these kids I was taking care of were my kids' age. 
And uh, there's no doubt that I realized I could have an even bigger impact when my tour ended to go back and really do some great things with the company that was already serving this clientele, if you will. And here's what I found when I got back. And um, this is what I found, John. And sometimes it's, it's difficult for me to reconcile, but it's the truth. It's the company had grown exponentially while I was away for 18 months. There's no doubt. The company was doing better with professional management and my wife, who is the COO at the helm. And so I got back and I realized that the company had taken on a, the value proposition had, had changed. It just had, and it's not wrong or right. It's just, it wasn't, it wasn't where I envisioned the company going, where it was truly serving, where it was truly impacting the lives of a service member in a bed. The company had become a, just a big company where the bottom line was the bottom line. And I lost sight of that. I did. I lost sight of that. And I had to make a choice when I got back. Is this, was this the battle I wanted to choose? To realign my company to the values that we started on? Or did I want to start fresh? And um, that, was, that was the dilemma I dealt with. It's, um, I had a value swap, a value proposition. Just The company had gone from a gazelle to an elephant. That's really what had happened. And um, it was difficult for me, John. And so, Rick, were you, what was the capital structure of the company? Were you the 100% shareholder of the company when you decided to sell? Did you have outside investors at the table at that time? 100% owner. We were, um, because of our designation as a federal contractor, I was the, I was the 100% owner, sole shareholder of the company. And so when you went to sell, how much of your business was uh, government customers, if you will, versus third-party you know, hospitals, other private institutions? 100% was federal. We had, we had shifted our business model uh, probably in 2004 and five. Uh, we had a mix about, I would say, 50% private, which is hospitals in the private sector, and 50% federal. And the federal government was just, a, it was a growing sector. So we moved everything into the government. So at that point, we were 100% federal contracting. Got it. And so how did you go about marketing this business? I mean, were you approached? Did you put it on the market? What was that? What was the process like of finding a buyer? Uh, you know, so a few things happened was I, I obviously, as I as I shared, I had kind of um, a heart shift, if you will. And I didn't know where to start. I, I didn't. I I I was a nurse who one day woke up at the helm of a very large company and um what I know now, it's much different, but what I knew then was hustle. That's all I knew. So I just started making phone calls. I started calling folks that I knew in the staffing business, uh, private staffing companies. What I mean is some of the largest staffing companies in the country who supply nurses to some of the biggest hospital systems and put feelers out there. I started calling people, um, making friends, if you will, just basically networking myself trying to put feelers out there to see who's looking to acquire, who might be looking to expand, who might be looking to add a government portfolio to their private sector portfolio. And that's truly where it began. Several meetings, phone calls, and um, I, I, I didn't know to be looking for brokers or M&A guys. Here's one thing I did know. Here's one thing I did know. It's, again, I, I knew hustle and I knew how to read. So I picked up a book. And John, it was your book. I kid you not. It was your book I picked up years and years ago. And it was built to sell. And 
that was my very first direction, if you will, on where I should be going. Fascinating. So, well, I'm flattered that you read it. That's good. Now, where did you go from there? So you started making these calls and then take us through the negotiation. Did somebody finally raise their hand and say, yeah, we want to buy your business? I mean, look, just get us to the next stage. Tell us what, what happened. How did you actually you know, sell the company? Sure. So let me try to, I want to make this really simple because I'm, I'm at my essence, a really simple guy. So met several people, several groups, if you will, who might have been interested, expressed an interest. Uh, we were a growing company. We were on that hockey stick, if you will. Um, things were going good. And I, I remember distinctly meeting some folks and having a meeting with them. We flew to, I flew from Texas. They flew from the East Coast. We met at um, the, the airport in New Orleans at a um, conference room, just like, you know, we just flew into the airport and had a conference room there at the hotel attached to the airport. We talked about the business, talked about what it could be, where it's going, um, possibilities. And um, it started with the simple conversation of somebody looking to acquire a government portfolio and me looking to change, change my game, if you will, just to, to change my game. So um, I, I wish it was sexier than that, but it, it, it really wasn't. It was me calling people, meeting them in person, and I, I think there's a, there's a power in face-to-face. -face. You get to see somebody where they're really coming from and vice versa. And um, um, something I said, which was some, this one line, which will forever haunt me or be part of my past, is I said, this company is going to go to the moon. And it actually scared an investor when they heard me say that because it wasn't what a professional says. You don't say going to the moon, but it's all I knew. You know, I just knew hustle, hard work, and um, you know, the power of the spoken word and, and getting it done. So did you actually sell this company that came to meet you in the New Orleans uh, hotel room? They were the ones who eventually uh, took the after, after I want to say, maybe a year of some, some time like that. They, um, they not, not that group per se, but parties in that group, um, after years of getting to know people, um, they became the ones who, who are the owners of the company to this day. So is that um, the owners, the people who bought it, was, was it like a private equity company or was it more of a strategic, like a company that already had a staffing business that wanted to add yours as, as, you know, to it as a new uh, part of a staffing company or was it sort of a private equity player? Who uh, you know, they weren't private equity players. They weren't any kind of venture capital firms. These were private parties who were in the staffing business who were looking to add uh, a growing book of federal business to their company. And we were, uh, maybe we were at the right place at the right time where I made the right phone call at the right time, but um, that's, how, that's how we were acquired. Got it. And so take me through the mechanics of, of the, the negotiation itself. I mean, it sounds like it was a fairly drawn out process. Were there other people at the table or were you just negotiating with this one group? It was, it was just the one group. And I, true to who I am, I wanted to keep it simple. I, um, by this time, I want to say if I can recall, by this time I had read your book. And I, I, I say that with all, with all love and respect, that's the truth. That's, that was the only thing I had to go off of. I read the book done some research. I wanted to make it short, simple. Um, I didn't want to get in deep into valuations and um, is it 3X? Is it 5X? Is it uh, one of the things that kept resonating was the company's worth what somebody's going to pay for it. So 
I kept that mantra at the forefront of my mind. My wife and I negotiated on on behalf, on our behalf together, because this was something we had built together and we were going to do this together and we were going to exit this. Our plan was to exit this together. And that has a little dot, dot, dot at the end of that. And so tell me about the actual negotiation. Did, did, you, did you get what you hoped to get for it? Was there a lot of back and forth on price or terms? I mean, what, was the, what were some of the sticking points? So there was some back and forth on price and terms. Uh, one of the things that we had, when I say we, I mean my side of the table, which is really my wife and I and, and our party involved, it's we already kind of knew where we wanted to go. We knew what we wanted to walk away with, so to speak. And so, so you had a number, Rick. Is that right? Like we you did. had a number in your mind? Okay. We did. We we knew. And one of the things we didn't want to do, John, it's we didn't want to get we didn't want to let that uh, that evil word called greed get in the way because and that was one of the reasons why we chose a number. So there was some back and forth though. There was some stuff about, well, uh, when you get into the the minutia of the books and add backs and and all of the things that go into, and I'm just going to preface this, I'm not an M&A guy, so a lot of these terms are still foreign to me. But um, when it got down deep into that, I'm like, you know, let's, I want to keep this more simple. I want to make sure that both parties walk away with what we expect to walk away with. And honestly, that I can shake hands or hug the other person at the end of the day. And um, that was one of my goals. And um, But the there was. I, I won't say it was a simple thing, that it was easy, but um, compared to some of the acquisitions or M&A things I've read, it was not as hard as some of the ones that I've read about or heard about. So how did you come up with a number? I mean, was did you guys look at what other staffing companies were selling for and say, okay, we, you know, we want to get X? Or was it more like we need X to feel like to retire? Or what? Like, how did you come up with a number? Uh, you know, it's. I, I want to say it was a combination of the two. There was an aspect where uh, my wife and I looked at each other and thought, what do we need? What do we need? Uh, maybe not for the rest of our lives, but what do we need to have a relative, live a life of relative where we want to be? And on the flip side, it's, and then what's out there? What is happening right now in this, in the, uh, the world of staffing companies in this space being acquired or merged or uh, combined. So we took a look at both, you know, what was going on in the market and where we wanted to go from a very personal level. Got it. And so what are, what are staffing companies trading at these days, as, uh, like in terms of a range of multiples? I have no idea. Multiples for staffing companies nowadays? Um, I'm fishing here. I'm, I'm searching my memory banks. I, I probably couldn't tell you. I have a friend who actually just had his sold in the last probably 18 months. And you know what? I, John, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what a multiple of, of, um, of a staffing, co staffing company is um, at, the, at the current, in, in current market terms. Fair enough. So, but you, you, you and your wife sat down and agreed that this is the number. You looked at what was going on in the marketplace. I'm assuming you kind of had a sense back then of what, what, what multiples seemed like. It was 2013 that you sold? That was when, so we finally closed. So we started the process in 2011. And it, it took a while. And a lot of what took a while, John, was because 
uh, I was the sole owner and uh, the, uh, the contracts were in my name as, uh, as the 100% owner. So there was some contractual things that we had to let um, expire and transfer over. But um, I know that sounds contradictive to what I just said is it wasn't hard, but it probably took about the full two years before we actually closed and signed and sealed. And I was officially um, done, for lack of a better word, with the company. Got it. And so did, did, was there an earnout aspect? Did you have to stay on for a transition period? I mean, what was that? What did that look like? Well, you know, a minute ago, I mentioned the dot, dot, dot. Yeah. How, how, and this is where this is where there are some lessons learned. And some of the, I guess, answers to your question is there was an earnout. There was some upfront and there was an earnout. And um, and then as far as staying on, the company had already proven when I was activated for 18 months that honestly, it, it, it didn't need me. And I guess that's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing, but, you know, to not feel needed, it's, it's sometimes not such a good thing. Um, I wasn't needed at point blank. So when we finished the sale, I was done. The bad part was my wife had become an integral part of the operations and um, she had to stay on. So she was the person who was driving your earnout, um, and and did you hit uh, your earnout? Did you leave early? I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs I talk to don't stick it out through the earnout. It's just too hard to work for another. Did you guys stick around, or what was that like? So that's a great question, John. And the thing is, is we did stick around um, for a few reasons. One, it's it's I want to say I had already started my next venture um, for two. Uh, and I say this with love and respect for my wife, the company had become a part of our DNA. So sticking around wasn't as hard as maybe we, maybe we thought it would be, but on the flip side, she was working for somebody else and it wasn't without a little, maybe a little edge of pain, but we stuck around for the entire time. In fact, that, that ended on December 31st of just this past year, 2014. Wow, you're you're free. You're both free now. We're both free now. As of a few months ago, like literally, this is still pretty pretty fresh. Yeah, yeah. And did your earnout have have triggers? So, was it an all or nothing deal? Like, if you hit X, you you get you know Y payment, or was it sort of shades of gray? Where if you hit you know twenty percent of X, there's a little payment, and thirty percent of X is a, a little payment. Like, was it, were there little steps and milestones, or or was it sort of an all or nothing? Uh, either you hit it or you didn't. So another great question, because there were steps and milestones. Uh, that was one of the not so clean parts. It's the earnouts were contingent upon contract performance. And one of the, I guess one of the rolling the dice parts is that the government controlled the contracts, not us. And uh, we had to, in other words, we had to keep continue to perform at a certain standard uh, in order to hit the certain numbers and metrics and that was what triggered the earnout. And we hit them. We did. And I won't say it was easy. There were certain times where we thought we might be losing some contracts and maybe the contract would not be renewed. And that would have had a big impact on the earnouts. But um, uh, the company, again, the company was already a, it was a machine and it continued to hit those numbers. And, you know, God willing, our, you know, we, were, we were fortunate that our earnout was not impacted. So what proportion of, of your deal would have been, if you will, at risk? So let's say you sold your company for $100. I'm assuming it's a lot more than that, but let's say for $100. What, what proportion of the $100 was, 
was paid up front versus, uh, you know, at risk, you know, contingent on you hitting the earn out? Okay. So let me, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to kind of talk out loud and kind of think through this. So if our earn out was a hundred dollars and we hit all of our numbers, we would get a hundred dollars. And if we didn't hit them, we would have gotten maybe, okay, I'm thinking about maybe 75 to 80. So 75 to 80 cents on the dollar, if we had not hit our numbers and it's still not a bad deal, but, um, wow, that's a great deal. So 75% was guaranteed. And the other 20 or 25% was, was sort of at risk. Right. And, and one of the beautiful parts of this, John, was that because our, our contracts, the contracts with the federal government are usually, um, they're multi-year, about five years long. So um, it's not like we have somebody in there for a few months at a time. These are long-term contracts. So these, uh, that was one of the reasons why it's, it, we had some stability in that number. Got it. Tell me, let's shift gears a little bit. Talk a little bit about how you told your employees, because in addition to the 600 nurses that you had in the field at, 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 at these different institutions, I'm sure you had staff at head office as well. We what, did. What so, was it like to tell them? How did you tell them? So we had our home office in San Antonio. Uh, we have 30 to 40 people in this office, and that's really our that's our core staff. Those are the that's that's our administrative staff, and then 500 ish, 500 plus ish, all over the country. Um, it, it, two different messages. So obviously, maybe not obviously, but being in San Antonio, I don't have day to day interaction with our staff who work in California or who work in Northern Texas or Florida. So. Letting them know was, honestly, it was just as a matter of when that time came. Uh, there was an official notification, I think, via email that went out, letting them know the change in ownership, but that nothing else was going to change. And I want to say, I want to believe, John, that that wasn't that difficult of a pill to swallow because there wasn't a lot of interaction. But then there's our home staff of about 30 people, and those are the folks who... Some of them have been there since year one, the beginning, and they've been a part of the company. They've been part of my wife, Lisa, and I's lives for some time, and it wasn't as easy. Um, it wasn't as easy, but one of the things that made it easy was Lisa was staying. Uh, it wasn't easy for me personally because I had built relationships. Um, so uh, let me just put it this way. It, it wasn't like a shock and awe thing to the staff there was already kind of a rumbling going on, especially when I had been absent for several years being activated. Um, I will say the very, the final moment where it was almost like a cheers, like the, the show cheers, the final moment where I walked away from the company was at a Christmas party in 2000, 2000, late 2012 or something like that. This was my last Christmas party at the company. And it was one of those kind of surreal moments because our entire home staff was there at a restaurant in San Antonio and our new owner was there and we were on the, the terrace of the restaurant and about to go in for dinner. And the surrealness was this, was everybody knew at this time that I had transferred ownership, but everybody expected me to come in and give my final farewell. And it didn't seem right. So I gave the new owner a hug. I said farewell to everybody. And in this very surreal way, they all walked into the restaurant and my wife and I walked the other way. And um, 
we're still friends with them to this day. I mean, we still are. So there was never any contention. It was not, it was not a difficult thing. It was difficult emotionally, but from a separation of ownership, it was not, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a tremendously difficult or traumatic thing. Have you felt any, and I mean, San Antonio is a, a, a good sized city, but it's not a massive city. I mean, you, you probably run into these employees time for, you know, occasionally. Do, do you feel any sense of animosity? Well, Lisa would have worked with them for two years after that. So did you feel any animosity towards, you know, you, you'd gotten the big check and, and they were still kind of grinding it out. Was there any of that sort of uh, animosity that, that you felt or Lisa felt? No, you know, I'm, my wife's sitting right here next to me, John, right now, and um, I'm looking at her as I answer the question, and as far as was there any animosity, I would have to say no. In fact, here's how I felt, and because I'm still in contact, my wife's in more contact with them than I am to this day, it's almost, the feeling was almost like one of our guys won. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the feeling I had. I never felt like the, who the heck are you to do this and leave? It was always more of, um, of one of, one of our guys made it and, um, Facebook just the other night, I'm in contact with one of them who moved to Oklahoma and, uh, some of the messages back and forth were basically, um, I'm proud of you. And I said back to them, I'm proud of you too. You know, we're, we're all working towards the same thing and that's to just have a better life. And being that it's that fresh, John, the, the whole dealing with our former employees, being friends with them, there, there wasn't animosity. Hmm. Tell me what you made. I mean, let's go back to the, the, uh, in, uh, the transaction itself. You and Lisa hit the earnout. Uh, you know, you get the big check. D- did you indulge in anything? Did you buy yourself anything? I mean, did, w- big or small, share with us the one indulgence that you uh, that you allowed yourself. So the so when it was all said and done, the one indulgence I allowed myself. Um, I'm saying this with a big, huge smile on my face because, uh, yes, there. I, I want to preface it by saying yes, we. Entrepreneurs, yes, we deserve the reward. We deserve something. Uh, and I'm going to say this live on air because not many people know this, but I, I bought a brand new, I bought a 911 convertible turbo Porsche. It's been the car of my dream since I was a kid. And um, I don't put it on Facebook. I don't flash around in it. I, I don't show everybody what I have. I did it because it symbolizes something to me on a very deep level. But that's what I did. And I have it to this day. Good for you. Good for you. I think that's great. I, I agree 100%. I mean, I think you, you, you slog it out for so many years. You take so many sacrifices, so many risks that, uh, you know, uh, you, you uh, deserve an indulgence from time to time. And if, it, if it's emblematic, if it's meaningful to you in a grander scale, it doesn't have to be a conspicuous consumption thing. It can be something that really for you has deeper meaning than it might for, for other people who go buy a Porsche. So I think that's great. Good for you. Thank you. What are you doing now? Are you just golfing and sitting on the beach? I mean, uh, what's life like now? No, you know, John, I, um, so I have gone to the beach, there's no doubt, but uh, I think true to this weird DNA strand that entrepreneurs have, it's, I, I, I don't think I ever left a business. I had, in, I had started some CrossFit gyms uh, several years ago. We're out of the business now, but I've always been in some sort of business. Currently, I've, I've recently published a book, and 
Um, I've really taken a deep dive into personal development and really um, guiding myself and others into figuring out uh, what's next. And it seems like I resonate the most with, believe it or not, entrepreneurs trying to figure out what's next. And I would love to say that this was the peak of the mountain and I'm done and let me get on my jet and fly away. But the fact is, um, this is another dot, dot, dot. After the sale, I was more lost than ever trying to figure out what it was I'm supposed to do now. Interesting. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, what did that feel like? How did you get yourself out of that? Uh, I'm still in it. I'm still, I'm still quote unquote searching, if you will. But, you know, uh, there's no doubt that this is the peak of a mountain uh, for an entrepreneur to have a successful exit. It is. It's something that, uh, you know, we build to sell, to use your vernacular. We build to sell whether we actually sell or not. And sometimes we do sell and we're at the top of the mountain. But the thing I realized, John, when I got to the top of the mountain was I looked to the other side and there was another mountain. And I suddenly felt a little bit lost. Like, was this my peak? Was this the end? You know, what is it I'm supposed to truly be doing with my existence? And it was a deep question for me. And I think a lot of us experienced it at some point. It can't all have been about a company was really where I'm getting at. Um, it, I, this is a very deep thing for me, John, but when I got the Porsche and I had the money and uh, I had sold my company, uh, I also carried the baggage of arrogance and ego with it. And I looked at myself in the mirror one day and says, Rick, you cannot, you're looking at yourself in the mirror. This cannot have been the end state. And so it started another quest for me of figuring out what I'm supposed to do with this now. But you've certainly figured it out to some extent. I mean, you're not so, I mean, what I know about you, I was somewhat facetious when I asked the question, are you on the beach or the golf course? Because yeah. I, know, I know you've written a book. I know you've got Project Bank. So, so you've certainly figured out some things. Just talk to us a little bit about Bank and, and what that is and, and, uh, and, and what, what people will get from reading the book. Yep. So, you know, um, to the point of the rewards is I did go to the beach and I did do those things and I did take some time off and it was fantastic. And then I came back into quote unquote reality and um, I had an accident, John. I had an accident that uh, I crushed my leg with the weightlifting injury. And that was my moment that I realized there's got to be a bigger picture. And when I described my accident to a friend of mine uh, at, an, at an event where I was still on crutches after my leg repair, and I flicked the edge of a wine glass saying, when the weight fell on me, it was like a bink moment, and I flicked the wine glass. So that's where the word comes from. And what it really signifies, it's these moments in life that are speaking to us. And it's up to us to kind of decode them and decipher them. And for me, mine was this accident after selling my company. It brought me back to a sense of reality and put me on this new path. My new path, and this is going to be just simple, I started writing. I, I, just, I discovered I love to write. So I wrote a book about my journey, um, about the theory behind reaching the pinnacle, my story of, of having reached it, and then um, what I did with it after and how I believe others can find some value in, in this really simple story called um, The Power of Bink. I love the name, by the way. So it's called The Power of Bink, and we can get it now. It's, it's released now? It's on Amazon. Oh, yes. great. Excellent. The Power of Bank, right? Yeah. And if you just, it's simple to Google that or, or I'm sorry, Amazon that or just plug in my name. And um, at the end, I am going to, we do have the landing page set up for listeners of your, of this, of this podcast so they can get it for free. Oh, fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Where, where do people go? What's, what's the URL? Yeah. So they can go to projectbink.com forward slash built to sell. 
That's fantastic. Rick, I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us your story. It's inspiring on so many levels. John, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.